you have it with you, Romans chapter 8. And let us uh, look to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for all of your word. We think of uh, this promise here in 2 Corinthians that uh, we are consoled by you and comforted by you that we might be able to comfort others. And Lord, uh, we pray that uh, as we're comforted by your word this morning, that uh, you might strengthen us uh, to use our understanding of your truth to be a comfort and encouragement to others. And Lord, we pray that you will uh, bless not only the reading, but now the preaching of the word to our hearts. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to begin this morning by just sharing with you the testimony of Dr. Robert Barnes. It might not be someone that you're familiar with, but Dr. Barnes lived in England around the time of the Protestant Reformation. He was a scholar and a preacher of the word, and he found himself drawn by the word itself into the Reformation cause very early on in his ministry. He used his pulpit to preach the Reformation doctrines of salvation by grace alone, through Christ alone, by faith alone. And this created an atmosphere of contention, obviously. And it resulted in what one historian called pulpit wars around Cambridge University, where Barnes ministered and where he taught. And uh, pulpit wars is kind of an interesting expression. Uh, um, I guess uh, there's still pulpit wars that go on today in a sense. But one man would preach a sermon uh, condemning Luther and the Reformation doctrines. And uh, another, like Barnes, would take to his pulpit and through the testimony of the scriptures show both the validity and the power of the truth and the weakness and the departure from the word that Roman Catholic dogma represented. It was Barnes and other reformers uh, who assumed that this was a spiritual and academic battle that was to be waged in the open arena of a free society within the context of the church and academia, with each side presenting its position to the people and then the people deciding uh, what their position would be under the preaching of the word. The belief of such men was that the truth would prevail and that uh, false doctrine and teaching would soon be revealed. So Barnes and the others, they delighted in the word of God and it brought them great joy to be able to preach freely the gospel of Jesus Christ. They had that sense of security and peace that comes from knowing that you're engaged in doing something that you believe to be right and, and know to be right. Um, and they saw the people embracing the gospel and going from being drones, carrying out the superstitious mandates of the bishops, to living, breathing men and women of faith. And they rejoiced before the Lord as those things happened in their midst. So here they are. You know, they're walking with the Lord, exercising their rights and liberties as ministers of the gospel, dispensing the truth with joy in the, in the free market of ideas, 
and reveling in the love of Christ as it was manifested in the gathering in of the elect because of their preaching. But suddenly, however, all of that changed for Robert Barnes. Barnes was going about his daily affairs in what was known then as the Convocation House at Cambridge, when a sergeant of arms seized him and placed him under arrest. His quarters and the general location were searched for works by Luther and other German reformers. Barnes was taken to London, condemned to Fleet Prison, the most infamous in England at the time. He was transferred from there to an even more notorious prison run by Augustinian monks or friars uh, to await execution. This particular prison in the Austin Friars uh, uh, Monastery was the only prison in a monastery in England. Barnes, however, managed to escape from that prison and flee to Europe. And he only returned to England after King Henry VIII adopted the Reformation. And Barnes, because he was a gifted man and knowledgeable in the scriptures, he soon gained Henry VIII's uh, favor. And he even served as an ambassador under Henry VIII for a time. But as some of you know, and most of you probably are at least slightly aware of, Henry VIII was a very fickle man. And just as Barnes was enjoying renewed popularity and freedom and fresh but distinct testimony for the Lord Jesus Christ, he was again accused. And he was suddenly arrested and this time imprisoned in the Tower of London. And without a trial, and without a hearing, he was condemned to death. Barnes died at the stake, not ever knowing what the charges were against him. And he had no opportunity whatsoever to defend himself. At the stake, Barnes delivered a, a calm protest. He declared that he was a victim of injustice and then gave a careful account of his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and his own testimony of faith and trust in the Lord Jesus. And he asked finally of the executioner if he had any article, or that is any charges, against him by which he had been condemned. And the executioner answered, no. I've just been ordered to kill you. I have no charges. Think of this, beloved. You're about to be subjected to capital punishment in a most painful and gruesome way. And there have been no charges. There's been no trial. You can make no defense because there are no crimes. Your enemies simply want you dead. He then asked if anyone present knew of a reason or if anyone could point out to him some heresy that he had embraced. There was silence in the crowd. And then Barnes said, 
that he was praying that the perpetrators of his death would be forgiven their crime. He prayed that all involved in any way, from the false accusations to his condemnation and execution, be heartily, freely, and charitably forgiven. And then he asked that they all, quote, bear him witness that he detested and abhorred all evil opinions and doctrines against the word of God, and that he died in the faith of Jesus Christ, by whom he doubted not but to be saved. And with that, he was publicly executed. Now, I've shared with you Barnes' story this morning because it's a testimony of how suddenly and dramatically the Christian situation can change. Now, not every change is as dramatic and final as this one, but we can go at a moment's notice, so to speak, from peace and freedom of one sort or another to trial and tribulation. And it can happen very quickly in this world. It might be a telephone call. It might be an email. It might be a text. It might be a trip to the doctor. It might be an unexpected and unexplained pain. It might be a distracted moment at the wheel. It might be a legislative action. It might be an executive order. It might be a moment of unguarded weakness on our part. A lie or a truth told about us. All sorts of things can carry you from peace and contentment into anxiety and discomfort in this world. Just imagine what it was like for Barnes, minding your own business, doing your job, and suddenly a sergeant of arms is at your elbow escorting you off to prison. And not just any prison, but a brutal prison. Now, two weeks ago, we were reflecting on what a blessing it is to sit under the outpouring of the inseparable love of the Lord Jesus Christ as we see it here in Romans chapter 8 set before us. And if you look at chapter 8, beginning with verse 28, Paul says this, And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknow, he also predestinated to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestinated, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? 
It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. What a wonderful and blessed testimony to what it means to sit in the light of, in the, in the pool of God's inseparable love to us through Jesus Christ. Now we conclude the introduction to this consideration of this blessed inseparable love by making a couple of observations. All of this is the result of his love fixed on you and me. His care and love for you is not to be determined by outward circumstances, but by his promise in love to work all things together for your good and to permit nothing at all to ever separate you from that love. The confidence that we have in this love doesn't relate to what our outward circumstances are, but to his promise to us. And the circumstances change, but the love is always there, is always present. Neither should you, we said last time, neither should you rest your hopes in the blessing of God's love on the grounds of how much you love him. Truth is, he loved you, when you had no love for him at all. So that's no safe ground to to measure how much he loves you, the ground on how much you love him. Our love for him can never be a, a proper gauge of his love for us because in this world, it'll always be less than a fit measure. And then we said, if you are in Christ by faith, you are loved by God in him. And the gauge of the thing is his word, his promise, and the inseparable nature of that love. And I ended that message by saying, may I challenge you to consider, in the context of your family and your friends in the Lord, what a great and blessed privilege it is to be the objects of this inseparable love. And I hope you took some time to do that. I was anxious that we all could just pause in the the midst of all the rancor and the noise and the uneasiness and, and the burdens of the present hour and just reflect together on what it means to be sitting in the heart of God's love through Jesus Christ. To be sitting as the objects of that love, to have it at resting on us, even while all the changes around us are going on. What an extraordinary blessing it is to be the object of a love like this love, 
a love that nothing can open a gap in, a love that, that remains ours. Now, because some people do associate or judge the love of God for them by their outward circumstances or their feelings rather than God's word and his promise, they assume that God only shows his love for them when their lives are trouble-free and easy. And it's sometimes put this way by those people. I must be doing something right because God sure is smiling on me. I'm prosperous. I don't have any problems. I don't have any troubles. I'm, I'm doing well. God must really love me. I must have the love of God because I'm, I'm prospering. By which they mean that by that outward circumstance, he's showing his love to them. The problem is with those folks is that when they are without these tangible evidences, they begin to fret and to doubt, fearing that they're falling prey to what Calvin calls tokens of God's wrath, or they think themselves perhaps to be forsaken by God, often because they can see no end to what they're struggling with, to the trial they're under, they come to fear that there is no end to their trials. But notice here in Romans chapter 8 that when Paul wishes to convey to you and me the security and the inseparable nature of this love, he touches on all the things a Christian may experience in this world which cannot, despite appearances or fears, create a rift or a chasm between you and the love that God has for you. Paul doesn't say, and you can know that all things work together for good for you because you never have anything to worry about. You can know that God, all things work together for good for you because you always are prospering and you have no troubles at all. No, Paul says you can know that you cannot be separated from this love because it doesn't matter what it is. It doesn't pull you apart from him, whether it's tribulation, distress, or even persecution. And notice just how strongly he puts it. He says, in effect, what one of these, what one of these things can separate you from the love of Christ. And then he names them one by one as if they are so many boogeymen rearing up to come between us and that love, and then he just knocks them down one by one. Sets before you tribulation. Is the tribulation? No. All right, what about the stress? Let's bring that up. Is it the stress? No. How about persecution? Is it persecution that can separate you from the love of Christ? No, he knocks that down too. He just goes through, lifts one up, knocks it down, lifts another one up, knocks it down, and just shows that there's nothing here. Nothing that can separate the believer from the love of Christ. And so as we begin to look at these things, we find that the first one is tribulation. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? 
Can tribulation separate you from the love of Christ? No. Can tribulation or constriction, we might say. The idea here is of continued pressure or vexation from without. It's a term used to express the pain of childbirth, as well as the trials of Joseph in Egypt. It's used to describe the gnawing pain of famine. And Paul uses it as a general, but very illustrative term in 2 Corinthians 1.8. For we do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, brethren, of our trouble, our affliction, our tribulation, our constriction, which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened beyond measure, above strength, so that we despaired even of life. Now Paul takes this word tribulation and he uses it here to describe what he was going through. And it's illustrated even more graphically in Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 32. But recall the former days in which after you were illuminated, you endured a great struggle with sufferings. Partly while you were made a spectacle, both by reproaches and tribulations. And partly while you became companions of those who were so treated. For you had compassion on me and my chains and joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods, knowing that you have a better and an enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. Now look at it there as it's described. You recall the former days in which after you were illuminated, that is after you believed, became Christians, you endured a great struggle with sufferings. Partly why you were made a spectacle both by reproaches and the tribulations that you had to endure. It has its background the idea of being run over by a heavy weight. You know how that feels? <laughs> Maybe you don't. But you can think of it here because that's what Paul says. This is what tribulation is. It's being run over by a heavy weight. And it can be considered a, a, a generic term for any serious difficulty that might arise in your life, beloved. It's hard for you and me in modern America to imagine the plight of the believers in, in the days recorded for us in the New Testament. Though it's getting easier. Remember, these believers, beloved, because of their Christian faith, were looked on as the off-scouring of the world. One of my jobs in college to help pay my tuition was to stand at the end of the big table with a big garbage can next to me and a trash can on the other side. And all the students brought their dirty dishes on trays and plopped them down in front of me. And it was my job to pick out the trash and throw it in the trash can and with a big brush scrape the garbage off the plates into the garbage pail. And there were times about halfway through dinner when that was a little difficult to do because there was this tub, plastic tub, sometimes metal, and in it was all the garbage and sometimes when you would scrape the stuff off the plate it would plop in there and sort of bubble up a little bit. 
and you had to sort of, makes me even a little nauseous to think about it right now. Now that is what Paul says the believers were considered at the time to be in the society in which they lived. They were like that garbage scraped into the pail, off of the plate. That was part of their tribulation. Paul said to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 4.12, And we labor, working with our own hands, being reviled, we bless. Being persecuted, we endure. Being defamed, we entreat. We have been made as the filth of the world, the off-scouring of all things until now. These people, beloved, were ostracized from their families and their friends. They were shut out of jobs. They were mocked and ridiculed. They had lost all the admiration and love of the world. But they were not separated from the love of Jesus Christ. That's what Paul is saying here. He's saying you've lost all this, but you've not lost that. That tribulation cannot separate you from that love. Robert Barnes is one of the many witnesses to this truth, and there are those in this present day whose testimony can be brought forward to show that the separation, excuse me, that the application of undue and even malicious pressure cannot separate the believer from the love of God and his Savior. And this pressure, pressure, excuse me, isn't always physical. Throughout history, Christians have been offered bribes to deny their faith, as well as torture. They felt the pressure applied by promises of ease and, and hopes of reward. But by enduring that temptation, they have found themselves enveloped in the love of Christ and rewarded in ways that nothing in this world could ever hope to match. So just a few things to keep in mind. We're talking about not being able to be separated from the love of Christ by tribulation. The first thing is simple. The believer should be prepared for tribulation in this world. You should be prepared for it. It's common to all men and women and children, Christian or not. You don't think you're the only ones who have trials in your life and, and tribulations, right? You know that happens to everyone. It's important to remember that a certain amount of tribulation arises from the curse and the fall. It's in sorrow that we're going to eat the bread, uh, eat our bread and the sweat of our brow. The tribulations, at least some of them, of this life are common to all men and women. The difference is for you, believer, is that you abide under the love of God in Christ. And all that tribulation is working together for your good at his hand. Those tribulations instruct, they correct, they sanctify you, all as a result of God's love for you. Tribulation is not uncommon to the Christian as a Christian. In Matthew chapter 24, verse 5, your Savior says, For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. 
and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars, see that you are not troubled. For all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there shall be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. All these things are the beginning of sorrows. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many shall be offended, will betray one another, and will hate one another. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many, and because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. Many will be offended when the tribulation of this world comes to bear on the body of Christ. In John 16, 33, Jesus says, these things I have spoken to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. These, these pressures, these trials. But be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. And then in Acts 14 and verse 19, we read that the Jews from Antioch and Iconium came where Paul was. And having persuaded the multitude, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. However, when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up and went into the city. And the next day, he departed with Barnabas to Derbe. And when they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith and saying, we must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God. So as Christians, we should expect tribulation. Thirdly, tribulation is not necessarily a, a sign of disfavor with God. But comfort in tribulation is an evidence of his love. We are comforted in our trials so that we then can be a comfort to others, as we read earlier in 2 Corinthians. Tribulation can, however, produce the evidence of unbelief among those who may appear at first to embrace the gospel. Tribulation can be a revealer of unbelief. In Matthew chapter 13, verse 20, Jesus again speaking, he says, But he who received the seed on stony places, this is he who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself but endures only for a while. For when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he stumbles. Also, earthly tribulation is a temporary and comparatively light thing. Paul refers to that in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning in verse 16. Therefore, we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. The light affliction is the word tribulation. And lastly, tribulation works in the beloved believer in a blessed way. In Romans 5, Paul says there in verse 1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, 
through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance and perseverance character and character hope. So what are we to do in our tribulations? We know they don't separate us from the love of Christ. What should we do? That's the first thing. Remember that you have not been separated from his love simply because you have been put to trial. But what you should do in the midst of that trial is look for tokens of his love. That's one of the hardest things for us to do is to, to realize that some trial has fallen on us, some tribulation, some difficulty, and to pause in the midst of that, and instead of looking at all the problems and all the trials and, and, and all the pain of the trouble, to, to ask, where may I see, where may I find the inseparable love of Jesus Christ in the midst of this trial? And then to pray to have the eyes to see those tokens when they are sent. To put your love in Christ and not the circumstances. Humble yourself and, and search your heart and pray to be faithful. I'm talking about all kinds of trials and, and tribulations. It, it might be as we've, uh, we've experienced here now just uh, yesterday, the loss of someone we love. And that's a trial. It's, it's a tribulation to, to have to deal with that, especially for the family itself. And to sit down in the midst of that trial and say, how do I know? What is the inseparable love of Christ resting on me in this circumstance? Maybe it has something to do within the context of your home, where you're, you're in some trial that was utterly unexpected. It might be a trial between husband and wife or, or one between children and parents. And while you're dealing with that and, and praying for, for the Lord to help bring the solution, to pause in the midst of it and say, where is the inseparable love of Christ for me in this circumstance? And to be looking for it and searching for it and humbly praying for it and doing so in faith. Now, after tribulation, Paul picks up and sets up affliction or calamity. And the rest of these are going to go quickly. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall distress? <laughs> Boy, talk, we, we all know what stress is, right? So does everything that causes you stress separate you from the love of Christ? Um, no. This relates to that feeling that comes from being closed in, whether literally or figuratively. It's a stronger word than tribulation. And it relates to the anxiety or the depression that's caused by such forced isolation and the feeling that we're at a loss to know what to do. And when you get to that point where there are no options, there are no available options. There's no, no escape. There's no seeming way of escape. Um, Robinson describes it as a sense of difficult, painful, and perplexing circumstances that simply can't be escaped. It refers to those situations where you believe and feel like you have no choices. All, all the avenues have been closed. All the doors shut. And the claustrophobic feeling that that produces emotionally and sometimes spiritually. 
Even when the circumstances seem hopeless, beloved, the love of God in Christ is reaching through those circumstances to give you hope. Not in yourself, not in the circumstances, but in him. In Psalm 4, David says, Hear me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have relieved me in my distress. Have mercy on me and hear my prayer. You have a great, uh, very graphic picture of this plight and the comfort of God's love in it. In uh, one of the passages where this term is used in Scripture, and it's a familiar one to you. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, the Apostle Paul is speaking, and he says this, And lest I should be exalted above measure by abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. I said, Lord, please, please end this distress in my life. The distress caused by this circumstance. Three times, Paul said, I said, Lord, please, please relieve me of this burden. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. And Paul says, therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. What Paul is saying, in effect, if I have to endure this for Christ's sake, then I know that I cannot be separated from the love of God. And, and he tells me that his grace is sufficient for me, that, that my, his strength is made perfect in my weakness, and I endure it for his sake. So what do we do in those moments of unbearable distress? We pray. We listen to God's word. We exercise that humble submission and we seek for the strength to endure for Christ's sake that belongs to those who cannot be separated from his love. And the next category is even more specific. So before we let go there, let's just try to apply this in a practical way. Maybe as I said earlier, it's your marriage or it's your relationship with your parents or your relationship with your children or even a relationship with friends. Perhaps in the context of work, it might be a health issue or any one of a dozen difficulties, sorrows or challenges that you as a Christian are brought to face in this world. The first thing to do is to remember these words of Paul. None of these things can separate you from the love of God in Jesus Christ. So start off remembering, here I sit, surrounded in this mess, by the inseparable love of God for me. It's a mess. It's all around me. But here I sit in the midst of the inseparable love of Jesus Christ. Searching then from his word for direction and assurance. In Psalm 31 verse 21 we read, Blessed be the Lord. For he has shown me his marvelous kindness in a strong city. For I said in my haste, I am cut off from before your eyes, that is the eyes of God. 
Nevertheless, you heard the voice of my supplication when I cried out to you. Oh, love the Lord, all you his saints, for the Lord preserves the faithful and fully repays the proud person. Be of good courage, and he shall strengthen your heart, all of you who hope in the Lord. And then the third and final one, and with this we close for this morning, persecution. Paul says, what will separate you from the love of Christ? Tribulation? How about distress? No. How about persecution? And this is the idea of pursuit with the intent to destroy or injure the one being pursued. It's described as active enmity against the truth by Robinson. It is the kind of pressure that comes with a specific purpose of causing you harm, if not death. It begins with Abel and it's never ceased down to today. In Galatians chapter 4, Paul says, Now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are children of promise. But as he who was born according to the flesh then persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, even so it is now. We'll tie in there with Sunday school. Galatians 4.29, where Paul speaks of the persecution of Isaac by his brother. And it's even so now, says Paul. We found it in the earlier passages about the gospel not taking root, where it was also coupled with tribulation. The difference between tribulation and specifically persecution seems to be just that. The persecution is more specific. Tribulation falls on all men, but persecution is especially tied to one's relationship to his or her confession of Jesus Christ. In Acts 8.1, we read, Now Saul was consenting to Stephen's death. At that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 10, Paul says, But you have carefully followed my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, love, perseverance, persecutions, afflictions, which happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and Lystra. Now, one of the things that it's important for you and me to keep in mind, beloved, is that some of the worst persecutions against Christians have been carried on, not by unbelievers, but supposed believers in the name of the church. The Pope was responsible ultimately for the death of hundreds of thousands of Christians. And persecutions in the name of unity and love will always be one perversion of the truth. The only thing that helped men and women like Dr. Barnes endure the trials of persecution is, as John Calvin says, a firm persuasion that the kindness and love of God towards them was neither severed nor lost, even during the heaviest afflictions. You can picture Dr. Barnes tied there to the stake with the fire set at his feet. And in the midst of that trial, that distress, that persecution, he knew he was in the love of Christ. And 
Some men and women look at their trials and distresses and persecutions, and they assume that they're, they represent a loss of God's favor and love. It's a temptation that can come to any one of us, especially if the trial is, is heavy or pinching enough. But thankfully, the Lord doesn't leave his beloved ones in doubt for long. As you trust in him and seek in his word, and you seek him out in prayer, he invariably sends tokens of his love. Did you see the token of love in Dr. Barnes' case? Did you catch the token of God's love towards him in the midst of his execution? Did you catch what it was? Now here he is. What are the charges against me? There are none. What have I done wrong that I should be burned at the stake? Nothing. Nobody can say anything. He's tied and the fire is applied. Where is the, the token of God's love in that? And this is the answer, beloved. The fact that he could pray sincerely for the forgiveness of all those who had a part in his unjust execution. That was a gracious token of how much God's love was shed in his heart. That he could stand there and say, not just, I forgive all of you, but saying, I pray that you will all be forgiven freely, heartily, and charitably. Just the opposite of what was being done to him. And he could only do that, beloved, because the love of Christ was being shed in his heart at that time. He didn't have to see revenge on those who were killing him. He didn't have to say in his heart, I hope they suffer for doing this to me. He could say, I I hope you're forgiven because I found forgiveness in the Lord Jesus Christ and I'm in the love of God and I can't be separated from it even by what you are doing to me now. I want to close the first part of the elimination of these seeming threats to the presence of God's love in our lives with the words of Calvin. Calvin says, he does not simply say, that is Paul, does not simply say that there is nothing which can tear God away from his love to us. But he means that the knowledge and lively sense of the love which he testifies to us is so vigorous in our hearts that it always shines in the darkness of afflictions. For as clouds, though they obscure the clear brightness of the sun, do not yet wholly deprive us of its light, so God, in adversities, sends forth through the darkness the rays of his favor. Lest temptation should overwhelm us with despair. Nay, our faith, supported by God's promise, as by wings, makes its way upward to heaven through all the intervening obstacles. 
That's the blessing we have as believers. That's the thing for us to look for. Whether we're in tribulation, whether we're under distress, or whether we're the subjects of persecution. We're to look for that blessing, that presence of God's love in and, and around it all. And he will show that love by his grace. Father in heaven, we thank you for the inseparable love which is ours through the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray, Lord, that we may know the comfort, the consolations, the blessing of that love in all of our